Hi, and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast of Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We're glad you've tuned in for today's sermon. My name is Ryan, and I'll be your host today. If you're listening to Stony Creek Radio for the first time, this series begins on episode 16. As we study Ecclesiastes together in this series, Chasing the Wind, we're going to be wrestling through some of life's biggest and most important questions. And our prayer is that we'll see together how God brings meaning to everything under the sun by means of His Son. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump right into today's sermon. Say and say, hey buddy, it's better for you not to do this. And he doesn't want to listen to that. He's going to make his own mind up. Uh, we were on, a, a, there's a construction mountain close to our house, mountain, it's a hill, but they call it the mountain. And we were up on the top of the hill. It was pretty muddy this week, as Andy was talking about. There was a lot of mud and my, I was wearing sandals, which was not a good idea. So it took me a long time to get down from the big mountain that we were on. Trey decided he was going to leave in front of us. And I said, nobody, wait. Now he had this little red motorized uh, tractor thing that was gifted to us. And so he gets on the tractor. He just drives away. And this thing is fast enough that I have to pretty much speed walk to keep up with it. And here I am kind of trucking down this mountain with Olivia, my, one of my other kids. And Trey's gone. He's out of sight. I finally get to the bottom of the hill. I look around the corner down the street. And all I see is his tractor abandoned his coat on the ground, about four feet in front of it. And of course, as a father, the worst hits me like, "Uh uh-oh, where is that boy? Finally, I found him. He was at the house. It wasn't a big deal, just sticking rocks in the vents of the house. No big deal, right? (laughs) But that's what he was doing. He refused to listen. He didn't want to listen. And it happens so often that, I mean, let me tell you two more things that happened this week. And I could tell you more in previous weeks, but this is just this week. So that was just a couple of days ago when it, the weather was nice. Uh, it happened again when he, let's see, which one I want to tell you now. We couldn't find him in the house. Couldn't find him anywhere. And this happens a lot because he just decides, I'm going to do my own thing. He's not going to listen. And he's one of the few kids. He's just not afraid of anything. My, some of my other kids are afraid of kind of being away from us. He's not. Couldn't find him in the entire house. Finally, Yvonne goes outside, and there he is in one of the cars, just driving, driving my car, sitting there. The other time I couldn't find him, finally find him underneath the bed with a marker on his hand, coloring, making a masterpiece at the bottom of our mattress. It doesn't matter what I say to Trey. I can say, hey, Trey, it's better for you not to do that. It's better for your own sake not for you not to run away. It's not safe for you, buddy, as a four-year-old to be running down the street. I'm wiser than he. And what he doesn't understand yet is I know what's better for him than he knows for himself, at least at this point in his life. I know better for him. He doesn't want to admit that. And so because of that, he pays the consequences. More so, those around him pay the consequences for his deciding that he knows better than someone who's wiser than he. And before I bash Trey too much, I find myself and we find ourselves so often doing the same thing. That we come to the word of God and we see one who is perfect in wisdom, who has conveyed to us, this is how your life is best lived. And it makes sense because he is our creator. He designed us in a certain way. And so he knows what's best for us in the way that we live our life. It makes sense if he created and designed us with certain parts, he would know 
This is how you flourish. This is how you grow. This is what's best for you. But so often we pay the consequences ourselves and those around us have to pay them because we refuse to acknowledge that the teaching of the word of God is far wiser than us. As we come to Ecclesiastes today, we're going to see Solomon wrestling with these realities that he has been wrestling with over the past first six chapters. And he's been, we've seen him looking to so many different wells for uh, fulfillment and for meaning and for lasting joy. He's ran to the well of wealth and the well of sex and the well of work or career. He's ran to the well of the simple pleasures of life, like laughter and wine and good friends. And every time he's run to that well, he's discovered that meaning and satisfaction and lasting happiness is not found in those wells. And so he's been telling us the the best response that we can make in light of these realities is to enjoy them. We enjoy these gifts as gifts from God but not trying to take out of them what God never put into them. God never designed wealth to fulfill us. And yet so often we think, if I just have a million dollars, if I just have more money, that longing that I have within myself, that that it's going to be satisfied. If I just get married, then that longing I have on the inside is going to be satisfied. Solomon ran to all of these wells and said, it is a vain pursuit to look to those things to find lasting happiness. You can enjoy them as gifts from God, but lasting happiness is not found there. So my my, my title today is in light of these first six chapters, how then shall we live? How then shall we live during our brief earthly time on this earth in light of these realities that he has already spoken about in the first six chapters. So how then shall we live during your brief earthly life? If I had a bit more space to have a title, I would call it something like this. Your days on earth are few. The world is crooked. Life isn't fair. The pursuits of this world will not bring you lasting happiness. How then shall you live? And that's the shift that we are seeing here in the material in Ecclesiastes where he now moves into, yes, we enjoy them as gifts, but now what's good for us to devote ourselves to? What's advantageous for us is the word that he is going to use. So I want you to see the end of chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. He poses in there a number of questions that he then answers in chapter 7. So look at chapter 6 together. Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him. So you can see in those verses, there's three questions that he mentions. Now, thematically, there's two questions. The first question is repeated in two different ways. He asks first, what's advantageous for us? In light of all of these things, what's advantageous for us? And then he rewords it and says, what is it? What, what is good for? Who knows what is good for a man while he lives? And don't you love Solomon? 
while he lives the few days of his vain life. The few days of his vain life while he lives that which passes like a shadow. What is good for us? And it almost sounds a little bit like he's being a bit of an Eeyore, like maybe he's in a bad space. But what we're going to see is he's going to be sharing with us lessons that he has learned. And I, and I don't think it's Solomon here in a bad space. It's Solomon here reflecting on his life and the pursuits that he's had to then provide for us wisdom for how to live based on what he has learned. So who knows what is good in light of all of these things? And, and when you look at those, the second question is, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So under the sun, we've talked about before, it's a reference to life on this earth. So those are the two questions. Who can tell us what is good for us? And who can tell us what comes after us? And those two questions are going to be answered in chapter 7. Verses 1 to 12 answers that first question. Then 13 and 14 answers that second question. Now, the basic answer to that question is, the Sunday school answer to that question is, only God can tell us these things. Only God can tell us what is good for us because God's our creator. Only God can tell us what comes after us because we are limited, we are finite, we cannot see the future. God can. So only God can tell us these things. Now, in terms of what is good for us, it makes sense that God, our creator, the way he's designed us, he can tell us, hey, this is how that longing that you have in your heart that hole that you have in your heart, that you continually look to different areas to try to fill, but you can't find out how to fill it, does it not make sense that the God who put that longing there is the one to tell you this is how that longing is fulfilled? This is how that hole in your heart is filled. It only makes sense that God can answer, and can, can answer those questions for us. And this is what God does for us in his word. This is God's voice to us. This is God saying to us, hey, I created you to live in relationship with myself. I created you to know lasting peace and joy, not in the things of this world, but in relationship with me. I created you in such a way that you will thrive and flourish together with others when you're together loving one another. When you're together putting the interests of others ahead of yourself when you're avoiding selfishness, when you're living in a generous and sacrificial way, I have created you to flourish and to know joy in living that way in relationship with me. And so that's that shift now that he's, that he's gonna get to. How then shall we live? This is what's good for you based on these realities that we've been wrestling with through our entire series on Ecclesiastes on the many vain pursuits of this world. Now, the way that Solomon answers this question is a little different than how we might answer it today. He goes into a number of different Proverbs. He goes into, and this is where you see a big shift in the material of the book. And he's going to share with us seven better than statements or seven better than comparisons. You're going to see seven times in your Bible, depending on the, the literalness of the word for word translation of your Bible, you will see seven times in the Hebrew, he says, better than, better than, better than. So things like, you know, vegetables are better for you than sugary cereal. Water is better than, for you, um, I'm just uh, sugary drinks, whatever. I had some stuff written down. Uh, <laughs> the Maple Leafs choke in the playoffs 
better than every other team in the history of the sporting world. So seven times there's better than statements. So I don't need to share any more of those. You get the idea. And what we're going to see for us, he's going to bring us in this answer to this question, what's good for us, into two different scenes. So he's going to, in a sense, bring us behind two different doors. And the first door he's going to open for us is the door into a funeral. And this is what he goes into. Verse 1 of chapter 7, a good name is better than precious ointment. For who knows what's good for us while we live, the vain days that we spend on this earth. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, or the house of laughter, the house of gladness. So these, these things that he shares with us almost sounds counterintuitive, almost sounds very counter to what we would think. I mean, how many of you would rather go to a funeral than go to a big celebration party? Most of us would rather go to some kind of party than to go to a funeral. Why is that? This is what he's going to be wrestling with as we talk about this. And I want you to notice as we kind of study through this, how similar this sounds to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes where Jesus doesn't say it's the, the wealthy who are blessed. He doesn't say it's the good looking who are blessed. He says, who, who, who are the ones who are blessed? Those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit, those who are blessed. And Solomon does so in much the same way in what he just shared with us in those four verses. And he says to us, it's better for us to be face to face in front of a casket than it is to be face to face in front of a crib. Better is the day of death than the day of life. It's better for you to be in a house of mourning than to be in a giant Christmas party where everyone is jovial and celebrating and singing Christmas songs. It's better to mourn than to laugh. I mean, look at that verse. It's, Sorrow is better than laughter. Sounds so counter Intuitive, so upside down from how so often we would think. Now, he, he's not saying this again because he hates life. He's not saying it because he's trying to be some kind of Eeyore, but he's saying these things because he's learned them to be true. So how is it that these statements are true? It's a natural question to ask. Why in the world would anyone say sorrow is better than laughter? And the first part of the, the first verse in chapter seven, it almost looks like it's out of place with the rest but it actually provides the context for the rest of what he says. Look at verse one. He says, for a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment is like expensive perfume. So it's referring to someone who's wealthy. Only the wealthy could smell good in this day. They were the ones who could afford the precious perfume, the, the, this precious ointment. So he's saying much the same thing. He said the same thing in Proverbs 21. He said, a good name is better than great riches. And he's saying much the same thing here. A good name is better than smelling good. It's better, better than smelling good on the outside is having an aroma on the inside that impacts others for good. 
an aroma that, 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 that shows you're a person of character, that you're a person who's trustworthy. Better than smelling good on the outside is having a good name. Now, how do we make a good name for ourselves? How do we become the kind of people of character that the scripture calls us to? How do we show ourselves, prove ourselves even to neighbors that we are someone that they can count on? That they are someone who they can give you their key and not have to worry that you're going to do something you shouldn't do? How did we develop into this kind? How, how do we develop this kind of character? And understanding in this kind of sense, seeking a name for yourself, seeking to make a name for yourself, this is a positive thing in this context. Remember in the Tower of Babel, they're trying to seek a name for themselves, so they build this big tower. And that context suggests that they were trying to make a name for themselves to, to kind of force God's hand to, to be famous, and they're doing it for their own benefit. In the context here, it's a good name, meaning a person of character, a person who others can count on, a person who others look to and say, wow, you are like Jesus, I want to be like you. How did we develop into that, that, that kind of people? And this is where he gets into. This is how he answers that question. So when he says, it's better the day of death than the day of life or the day of birth or sorrow is better than laughter. He's saying these things in the context of sorrow is a better teacher than laughter when it comes to wrestling with what's important in life when it comes to developing you, your, the character that you have and the reputation that you have. Uh, a casket is a better teacher for you than a newborn baby in a crib. And we can learn a lot when we visit a new mom. We see the new baby. We can see a new baby and we can see God's hands and it can be a beautiful thing. And Solomon saying, isn't saying that that can't be a teacher, but what he's saying is a better teacher is to be face-to-face -face with the death of a loved one, the casket where a loved one is inside and their lifeless body is inside. And why is that the case? Why is a funeral a better teacher than a nursery? And think in terms of, of a nursery. What can you say about a baby when a baby's born other than, oh, the baby's so cute? Baby looks like mom. Oh, wait, it turned. It looks like dad. Oh, it looks like both. Oh, it's such a good mix to both of you. Same kinds of conversations that happen every time you see a new baby. But think of the conversations and when the learning that happens at a funeral. And you begin to hear about the person's life. And whether it's good or bad, you're challenged with questions that you wouldn't otherwise be challenged with. You hear the death of uh, a dear saint in the Lord who, you know, she loved the Lord well. She gave of herself sacrificially and generously. She loved her grandkids well and challenged them in the faith. Those kinds of things challenge you in ways that a, a birth can't or a celebration can't. You even think of the opposite. You, you go to a funeral of someone and it's like, man, that guy loved his beer and his Toronto Maple Leafs. He always held out the hope that they were going to win. He died without that hope being fulfilled. Even in that, you hear words like that said, and you say, well, I don't want that to be said of me at my funeral. I don't want the best things that people can say about me is, oh, he loved his beer. 
I don't drink beer anyway, but he loved his beer and he loved his maple leaves. So that a funeral challenges you with questions in life that you wouldn't otherwise be challenged with in other settings. So this is why he's, he's pointing us to this funeral scene to be challenged with these questions. A funeral challenges you with these questions of who am I? What am I doing with my life? What is going to be said of me at my funeral? And how am I going to stand before Jesus? With what am I going to stand before Jesus with? That's why Solomon says it's better to go to the house of mourning. House of mourning is a better teacher. Verse three goes on and says, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is the in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. When you go to a funeral, we think about our lives. We think about our reputation. And as followers of Jesus, we should be challenged with, in a sense, what is our heavenly reputation. As followers of Jesus, we have the hope of the resurrection. This is why we can say along with Paul, to die is gain. Remember Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm here on this earth, I want to live for Christ, but to die is gain. It's much the same thing that Solomon says here. The day of, Solomon just didn't quite understand it in its full, full, fullness as Paul would bring out in the New Testament later on. But we can say along with Solomon to die is gain, or to, the, the day of death is better than the day of life because for us, death is, as I prayed earlier, not an exit into uh, oblivion, but it is an entrance into eternity. And we spend all eternity with Jesus. And so the day of de death is better than, for the believer, the day of birth in that way as well. So those are the first four better than statements. And then verses 5 to 12 have the remaining three. And the remaining three better than scenes, Solomon then closes that door and then now opens the door to what is a fork in the road. It's a fork in the road where there's two paths that are shown for us. One path is wide and many follow it. The other path is narrow and very difficult to travel down. Who does that sound like? The Sermon on the Mount, the, the Beatitudes is how he began. And now this is going to sound a whole lot like how Jesus ends in the Sermon on the Mount. When he gives the, the, the choice to his followers, are you going to choose the wide road or are you going to choose the narrow road? Are you going to choose to build your house on the rock, to do the work that's necessary, to dig down deep, to build your house on a foundation that will withstand the storm? Or are you just going to build on the sand that when the storm comes, it's going to just kind of wash away? So he's, we're being presented with two different options here. A fork in the road is essentially where he moves to here. And he's going to tell us the wise choose the hard road. The wise choose the way of wisdom. Because even though they know it's hard, they know it's the only road that they take that's going to stand in the end. Just like the house that's built on the rock, the only house that's going to withstand the storm. So the wise choose the hard road, the road less traveled. Verse five, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Better to hear the rebuke of the wise than listen to the song of fools. How counter that is to so much of our world as well. We love the song of fools. We love 
just kind of dumbing uh, our consciences, just kind of numbing our consciences, consciences by listening to mindless drivel or watching and filling our minds with mindless drivel. Song of Fools. Baby, 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 oh. Baby, 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 no. Like, what is that? Or these, these songs about gummy bears and songs about what foxes say. And we listen to these and we rock out to these and we make dances to these. Unless you think I'm only kind of knocking the songs of today, Song of Fools can also sound like Rock and Robin, Tweet, Tweet, Tweetly. We love to listen to that stuff, to watch mindless entertainments that just kind of fills our minds but never challenges us with anything. And this is where Solomon says, the fool does that more than seeking the rebuke of the wise. I mean, who by, hey, hey, I want to seek out the rebuke of the wise. Hey, I want to open myself up to accountability and have someone rebuke me when I'm off track. That's not counter to what we want to do. Typically, what people want to do is surround themselves with people who think like them and act like them, have a podcast and interview people who think like them and act like them, who never actually challenge each other, just kind of go about life. Oh, you're going to support what I support. I'm going to support what you support. Let's all be friends. But Solomon is saying, the foolish do that. The wise open themselves up to accountability. Someone who is godly to speak into their life and rebuke you when you're off track. The best thing that can happen to you if you are having an affair on your spouse is to have a godly person speak into your life and say, you are, (laughs) you need to stop doing that. Call you out on it. The best thing you can have happen to you if you are living in sin and you're hiding the sin and you have a believer, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ who finds out about it, the best thing you can have happen to you is to have them rebuke you in that. And we say, oh, no, mind your own business. Solomon is saying the wise open themselves up to accountability and accept the rebuke of those who are wiser than they. And how important that is for us. How important that kind of accountability is for us. And it goes so much against the grain of our culture to do that. Even think in terms of, if you want to become a a good writer, what's the best thing you can do as a writer? Write it out, send it to someone who knows how to write, a gifted writer who can then criticize it, cut it up, chop it to bits to tell you, hey, this is how you need, this is the direction you need to go. I remember preaching class. In preaching class, we had to prepare a sermon, video record it, preach it in front of a class. And everyone's just looking at you and no one's actually listening to what you're saying. They just are criticizing you, critiquing you, rebuking you, shifting you on on getting you into a right focus. And that's how anyone learns how to preach is by opening themselves up to that kind of being challenged with, the kind of rebuke. It is wise for us to have that kind of accountability. Even though everything inside of you doesn't want to have that, It's wise for you to seek the rebuke of the wise. 
Verse seven, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now it's not entirely clear. This is one of those verses that's really hard to translate. It's possible that he's talking about someone who is doing the oppressing or it's possible he's talking about someone who is oppressed. Whether maybe if you're doing the oppressing, oftentimes when someone's oppressing someone else, they kind of become infatuated by it and the money that they can make by oppressing someone else and it's kind of foolishness, it leads them to madness. Or it could be when a person's oppressed by someone else, it leads them to speak or act in ways they wouldn't normally speak or act. Uh, and then he goes on to say, a bribe corrupts the heart. A bribe tempts the wise to corruption. And so what he's trying to get at here is something we're going to look at more next week. In a sense, he's talking about the limitations of wisdom. That wisdom is something that is advantageous for us to pursue, but it has its limits. Even a wise person can be drawn astray, can be led astray by oppression, by receiving bribes and those kinds of things. And so we're going we're gonna to wrestle with that. Next week, the theme really is the limitations of wisdom, if you look at the next section. So we're going to wrestle with that a bit deeper at that point. Verse 8 goes on to say, Better is the end of a thing. The microphone last week, when I was having all those issues, it actually just died. And maybe I've just killed this one too. Is it uh, okay? Is it working? Sounds good right now. Is it, is it this that's doing it? No? <laughs> okay. It's hard to say. Let's just keep going and see what happens. Uh, verse 8, he goes on to say, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. Better is the end. It's much easier to start something than it is to finish something. It's much easier to go into a marriage. It's much harder to persevere through it and make it to the end. It's much easier to start college or university. It's much harder to finish it. You don't get the degree until you finish it. So better is the end of a thing than the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Patience is better than pride. Speaking in terms of waiting on God. Waiting on God is better than you being impatient with, why God are you taking so long? I'm going to take the bull by the horns and do it myself. Better to be patient. Better better to wait on the Lord than to think, hey, God, you're taking too long. I know a better way. I'm going to be like Trey. I'm going to do my own thing and not listen to you. So better is patience than kind of sitting on that pride pedestal. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Guard your temper. Your temper makes you, labels you a fool. And it's in response to how how do you respond when things don't go your way? When things don't go your way, do you lose your temper? Or do you trust? Are you slow to anger? Verse 10 goes on to say, and just just as a bit of a warning, this verse 10 is going to punch, punch me in the gut, maybe punch you in the gut too. Verse 10, say not... Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. I wish things were as they used to be. Back in my day, ice cream was only a nickel. Your paycheck was only 50 cents too, if you you forget that. Back in my day, 
the teenage boys wore their pants above their bum, not below it. Back in my day when we came to church, we sang hymns only with an organ. Better, he says here, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not wisdom that you ask this. So he warns us and says, it is foolish to think like this. It is foolish to live your life today, longing for it to be like it used to be. Now, why would he say that? I want you to first, I want to first say what he's not saying. He's not saying don't learn from history. He's not saying don't reflect on your life and, and learn the lessons that we need to learn. We have to learn from history. We're going to repeat history. So it's important that we look back and we give thanks for our past. We give thanks for how things used to be. But when we long for them, when we have this desire to return for how things used to be, there's a number of things that happen that Solomon is warning us against. When we start to long for only the days of the past and, and refuse to live in the present, we're missing the good things that God is doing today. When we're saying, hey, in the good old days, we sang hymns. We're missing out on today the incredible songs that are coming out of gifted, godly believers that we could be singing together and refusing to appreciate and give thanks to God for this new music that's coming out. When we refuse to live in the present and just long for a return of what is really a glorified, airbrushed view of the past, we miss out on what God is calling us to do in the present and to appreciate and to give thanks for, for the redemptive work of God through the years. Every age has its own challenges. Every age has its own blessings. We cannot deal with or, or even deal with the, the challenges of this age by pining for an old age. So he says to us, it is foolish to live your life today longing for a return for how things used to be. Verse 11 goes on, says, wisdom is good with an inheritance an advantage to those who seek the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. In other, in other words, he's, he's saying, you no, know, wisdom is good. It has value, but it also has its limitations. He compares wisdom to money here. And think in terms of having a rainy day fund. And I've heard financial advisors say, you should have $10,000 put away as a rainy day fund. And that offers you some protection, right? The reality of that is if something happens, you have a, the roof has a big leak, you have that rainy day fund, that money put aside where you can deal with that issue without a lot of trouble. And he says, wisdom is much the same way. Wisdom has its advantages. Wisdom is like money in that sense. But wisdom, like money, also has its limitations. And he's gonna, again, deal with that in a lot greater way next week. Verse 13 is the answer now to the second question. Who can tell us what comes next? Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what has been made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So God has created us in this limited capacity. There are things that we will never understand about God 
Uh, there's questions that we are always going to have because we are limited in our understanding. So this kind of question he throws out, who can tell us what comes next? The answer is only God can. But we, so, so therefore, we run to God. But we run to God not for answers. We run to God for shelter, for shelter under his sovereignty. But when we see that there is a God who is at work in this world, who's making straight that which has been made crooked. When we see there's a God in this world who is working in such a way to bring that which is bad into something that is good, then we can rest in him and know that there is a good God who is sovereign and who is in control of all things. Think of the examples we see in the scriptures of that happening, of someone like Joseph, his brothers selling him into slavery. That's something that is very bad. And yet God used that for great good for the entire people of God. Or the best example of that in all the scriptures is the example of Jesus. Jesus was murdered on a cross. And yet God would use the murder of Jesus on the cross to bring about the greatest possible good this world could ever know. That he would die in our place for our sin. That we can be reconciled to God in relationship that we can be raised to life with him and enjoy eternal life forever and ever and ever. And God accomplished that for us through the murder of his son. We have a God in this world. This God that we serve is sovereign. He is making straight that which is crooked. He's bringing about his redemptive purposes in this world. And what that allows us to do is to say, listen, I don't know what's going on. I, I can't explain what's going on. I can't know all there is to know of what God is doing in this world. I can't know the future, but I know the God who does know the future. I know the God who does hold the future and I can rest in that. And that's where Solomon takes us to at the end of this section, to rest in the sovereignty of God that I don't know how things are going to pan out. There are certain things the scriptures do tell us, but there's much we don't know. But we can rest in the God who does know. We can rest in the God who is redemptively at work in this world, making straight that which is crooked. And I don't know about you, but in the face of the realities of this world in which we are living in today and what is on the news every night at 10 o'clock when I turn it on, I take great hope and great heart in knowing that there is the God that I serve, the God of the scriptures is the God who is sovereign over it all and who, has, and who is at work in the midst of it all, bringing about his redemptive purposes in this world. So we live like this. It's like we're building our houses on the rock, as Jesus would say. That when the storms come, the house stands firm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Solomon here and what he shares with us in Ecclesiastes in this passage we just studied this morning. And I pray that we as a church together, that we would seek the way of wisdom, that we, knowing that it's the harder path, the path less traveled, that we would be willing to take that path knowing that that is the path you call us to take, knowing that's the best path for us to be on. Thank you as well for these reminders of 
how you have called us to, to live and how we can develop a godly character and develop a reputation where others can look to. And, and, and that others can look to and trust that we have their best interests in mind. So Father, I thank you for this. I thank you for the hope and the truth that we can rest in today, that you are at work in this world and that you are sovereign over it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's Word, we'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, and this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless. Thank you.